Perverted, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. Hey everyone, I'm glad to be back with you this week on Afro Verdict. So in today's podcast, we are about to delve into a rather dark period of history. And specifically, I'm now talking about the British atrocities in Kenya during the colonial period. I'm bringing up this topic in light of the upcoming visit of King Charles III to Kenya, which will take place tomorrow on the 31st of October 2023. And it is a visit that comes with a lot of mixed feelings, let's leave it at that. Because while receiving his visit in the country, we cannot ignore the deep-seated memories of the Mau Mau uprising, a rebel movement that fought against British colonial rule between 1952 and 1960. The British ruled Kenya for over six decades, from 1895 to 1963. And during this period, they committed some of the most heinous atrocities against the Kenyan people. Take the unequal treatment of people, for example, the constrained political participation, labor exploitation, forced labor, as well as torture, of course, all were part and parcel of British actions and British colonial rule in Kenya. Let's quickly recap the history of that period. The British colonizers first came to Kenya in the late 1800s and by the early 20th century, Kenya was a British protectorate. The first wave of colonizers used commerce, diplomacy, as well as force to gain control of Kenya's coast as well as the interior. Britain then formalized its control over Kenya in 1895 and in the following year combined it with its East African colonies of Uganda and Tanganyika to form the East Africa Protectorate. In 1920, the Protectorate was renamed to the Kenya Colony and Protectorate. Over the years, the British administration instituted a number of policies that marginalized Kenyan natives, particularly the Kikuyu. The Kenyan highlands, which were the most fertile areas of the country, were designated as a white highlands reserve for European settlers. Now this forced then thousands of Kikuyu, who were originally farming those lands, to be pushed out and they became squatters or lived in overcrowded reserves. This process also created a system of landless and jobless laborers who couldn't earn a decent living and were prone to poverty and disease as it usually is. Then in 1944, Kenyan nationalist Jomo Kenyatta founded the Kenya African Union, the KAU, which aimed to end British colonial rule and achieve independence. The KAU called for land reform and an end to forced labor and political representation for Kenyan natives. However, the British colonial government saw the KAU as a threat and in 1950 Kenyatta was arrested and put on trial for promoting anti-British sentiment. The primary strategy employed by the British was a military-led crackdown. They established numerous detention camps and screening centers across the country where suspected Mau Mau members or sympathizers were detained and interrogated. These camps became notorious for the use of torture, abuse and brutal interrogation techniques, which of course included beatings, starvation and even sexual violence. The British employed a scorched earth policy where they destroyed crops, livestock and property in rural areas, hoping to deprive the rebels of support from the local population. Additionally, the British forces instituted a strict curfew, 
restricted movement and imposed forced labor on those living in the designated so-called emergency areas. The suppression of the Mau Mau rebellion was brutal and controversial. Estimates suggest that around 20,000 Kenyans were killed during the conflict, while others were subjected to widespread torture, arbitrary detention and human rights abuses. The British government's actions have since been heavily criticized for their disregard for human rights and the excessive use of force at that time. The rebellion was then officially declared over in 1960, but its impact continued to reverberate for years to come. The Mau Mau Rebellion played a significant role in the eventual granting of independence to Kenya in 1963 as it exposed the injustices of British colonial rule and strengthened the resolve of the Kenyan independence movement. Now to take a closer and even more personal take on this topic, I'm joined by Professor Macharia Munene, Professor of History and International Relations at the United States International University in Kenya. Nairobi. Professor Monene, thank you for joining AfroVerdict today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you at this time. All right, Prof. Uh, tomorrow, King Charles and Queen Camilla are visiting Kenya. What is the public sentiment in Kenya ahead of this visit? Well, it's kind of mixed. There are no uh, big emotional attachments. It is amusing. But since it is known that the royal family has a lot of interest in Kenya, personal interests, they own land, they have some other sort of uh, engagements uh, that are traced back to the colonial days um, when the Kenya was created as a white man's country, the colony, with aristocrats and royalties owning quite a lot of things uh, because um, the intention, it appears, initially was to turn it into a dominion, but that did not happen. So although officially the British colonial rule left uh, in 1963 and 64, um, institutions and uh, legacies, attachments remained at personal level and also as a source of um, interest to a number of people, but not uh, to be concerned with a lot of to a lot of people. A few people, yes, particularly the elite, have special attachment, but ordinary people do not have that much attention apart from being amused. I've given our listeners an introduction, a brief historical introduction to this topic. But in your opinion, which events during the British colonial rule in Kenya and the Mau Mau uprising had the most lasting effects? Well, the whole Mau Mau experience was uh, disturbing. It was traumatizing. Of course, there were a series of events uh, like the Hola massacre that still embraced in people's heads. Uh, you still have the memories of the Kapengoria trial. We have detentions um, in the various camps, some of them atrocious. Um, then, of course, we have the forest fighters and uh, memories of good. Uh, people who distinguish themselves, like General Kago Amboko or the fame of Dead and Kimadi. Uh, but the whole episode is remembered as having a forced uh, independence uh, on Kenya from the British. It is not that the British government wanted it, it is they were forced to it. 
And once they were forced, then uh, they found a clever way of extricating themselves from a very um, awkward situation. So the memory of Mau Mau, the whole thing, the emergency, as people call it, they call it emergency, to remain the, the trauma that they experienced in those uh, uh, years of the 1950s. Those are gradually fading as the old people were involved uh, disappear from the world. Uh, so it's now become, Roma becomes an increasingly a distant memory uh, that some people still have. Uh, thanks, Prof. In the introduction, I outlined that around 20,000 Kikuyu fighters, as well as fighters from other tribes, were killed in the Mau Mau Rebellion. However, unofficial figures exceed even this number, by the way. So how are these tragic events reflected in modern Kenyan society? I mean, you've already touched upon this topic, but uh, elaborate a little bit more for us. Well, um, the, uh, the reflection has been um, up and down. For a long time in post-colonial Kenya, there was effort to downplay Mau Mau, in effect to forget about it, particularly because those who gained power, those who uh, took uh, uh, positions in the post-colonial state uh, were identified mostly with the collaborators. They were opposed to the Mau Mau, and that's why they were groomed to take some uh, places. And uh, once in positions of power, they did their best to be in tune with what the official British thinking was, uh, to downplay Mau Mau. So there was that period where uh, it became almost uh, uh, very problematic for people to speak about the Mau Mau. In recent uh, months and years, uh, there has been an attempt to rehabilitate. In fact, the rehabilitation started with uh, President Mwai Kibaki, but increasingly we now have politicians going out of their way to say that they identify with the Mau Mau movement including the deputy president, the current deputy president. Uh, president. So there is that. And uh, Mau Mau as a phenomenon has become a contentious one because some politicians want to gain polit um, publicity. They identify themselves with the Mau Mau uh, movement. Uh, we've recently had a few deaths of prominent people and we've seen politicians uh, almost competing to identify with the movement. Um, it's an interesting development, but that has not changed much the fortunes of those who were involved in Mama, those who were neglected, and they keep on complaining that they were neglected. So yes, a lot of people died, mistreated, but since colonialism was a, uh, was a, a racial issue, even anti-colonialism turned out to be a racial issue. And what people at the time wanted was to you remove white faces and put black faces without changing the structures and the system. And since they were happy with the color change of the rulers, they didn't complain very much initially until maybe a few years later, a decade or so, and they started wondering what it is that happened because the expectations of independence were not matched by the reality of independence, especially under Jomo Kenyatta, whom who had inspired these people into the Mau Mau activities. And uh, once he got into office, he seems to have forgotten the people he inspired. And that's where the pain is. Uh, information 
In fact, even nowadays, plays a crucial role in the political process, in international relations, and even in warfare. Uh, but this is obviously not a recent discovery, because during the Mau Mau period, Britain painted the Mau Mau as an irrational force of evil, promoting quite a hateful and inhumane narrative. But if we speak about the current era, about modern times, today, what methods do Western countries use to influence public opinion in Africa to their advantage? Well, they have been trying a lot of things, uh, and they've gone through some um, metamorphosis of presentation. Uh, there was a time when the Western powers were very eager to be seen, to identify with particular individuals uh, in that uh, neo-colonial relationship. And the individuals of the clan states seem to be happy about it. Uh, there came a time when that arrangement seemed to be backfiring because the favored people were being knocked down. And there was a reassessment which argued that the reason the West was unpopular is because it was identified with an tyrants and an unpopular people. So there's, that's when they started the whole um, uh, claims about democratization. Democratization was simply a strategy to make the West look good uh, by distancing itself from the past, uh, uh, the, 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 the negative past. More recently, there has been a, a similar return to the old ways of trying to identify individuals and call them leaders or portray them as the leaders. It's something that they did very well in the 1950s and early 60s, especially promotion of Tom Boy as the leader of the Africans all over. And they created resentment in some circles. So we have the same thing happening now. The West has gone out of its way to portray William Ruto as the leader of the Africans. And there has been a little bit of a problem with that because um, other African countries do not seem to bite. But there has been that pro um, projection of William Ruto as the new leader. The way they used to talk about new leaders in the 1980s. So Ruto is the kind of the new leader of the present moment, getting quite a bit of praises from Joe Biden and the Western uh, authorities as the leader of the Africans. It just has not worked out very well with the rest of the Africans. And uh, when that happens, a lot of questions are asked about what is the objective and uh, what is going on. And uh, some of the conclusion is that things are not going very well. Uh, we have the problem of the Sudan, Haiti, uh, the Sahel, and, um, and uh, in some cases, uh, some very sensitive areas. And uh, so far, in terms of foreign policy projection, uh, President Ruto has tried very hard to look good. He just has a problem looking good because of some perspective, some perception that he may not be his own man. According to an official statement from Buckingham Palace, during his visit to Kenya, the British monarch will recognize the, quote, wrongs suffered by Kenyan people during the UK's colonial reign. While many scholars and activists characterize the modern foreign policy of the United Kingdom and other Western countries, by the way, as neocolonialism, could you say that modern-day Britain has got rid of its colonial legacy completely? No, it never intended to get rid of its colonial legacy. And uh, it worked very hard to ensure that Kenya was perceived to be 
or became a neo-colonial state with um, the leaders of the day being those who were sympathetic to colonialism uh, and then took advantage of political developments, uh, Britain never really left because it has a lot of investments. It owns, uh, the, the royal family owns a lot of land in, um, in Kenya and uh, other uh, properties, conservancies, and um, people have a soft spot for British things. The British military trains in Kenya, the Batuk, um, the, the, the areas of Marsabe, Trisiolo, Laikipia, and sometimes there are frictions there because they leave some live ammunition uh, which then explode at the wrong time. And their soldiers sometimes misbehave and leave um, uh, children behind whom they don't care about, or they don't look after, and sometimes deaths do occur. So, but despite all those things, uh, the, there really is no uh, hostility uh, towards the British as such, except when they interfere with politics and try to force their way, to force Kenyans to agree with them, something they don't agree. But the neo-colonial relationship has been continuous. It's only during Mwaki back his time that he tried to reduce that attachment. And he got into a lot of trouble with the British and the Americans uh, for doing that. So neocolonialism has been a long-lasting uh, reality in Kenya. And sometimes it appeared as if the leaders did not mind that image of Kenya being a neocolonial state. So Britain, stressing its neocolonial uh, uh, desires on Kenya, is can be seen to be normal. Only that occasionally there is a collision when Kenyan uh, agents of British interests do not seem to deliver very well, or when they seem to differ or differ uh, from what the uh, master states, the officials in master states in London want. And when that happens, happened, we have had some frictions. But ordinarily, the relations between the rulers in London and the rulers in Nairobi seem to be good. For those of you joining just now, welcome to AfroVerdict with your host, Victor Anakin. Um, I'm speaking to Professor Munene about the British colonial rule in Kenya during the mid-20th century. Prof here explained how Britain never intended to get rid of its colonial legacy, even after the reforms post the Mau Mau uprising, as the royal family had, and still has, many interests and assets across the country. Is the UK able to compensate that which Kenya lost as a result of the colonial period and the colonial rule of Britain? That is the question of the day and let's find out from Professor Muneni. Coming right up. All right, Prof, I'm once again with you. So a recent report by the United Nations Human Rights Council shed light on the prevalence of systemic racism in the British criminal justice system and other spheres. So is there an influence of institutionalized racism on the UK's foreign policy? Well, it is a paradox that intensified racism and anti-migrants, particularly anti-African migrants to England, has increased while people of uh, East African origin 
uh, are supposedly the rulers in England. Uh, the prime minister, um, his ancestors, his uh, grandparents were from Kenya. And uh, his home affairs secretaries, the, both of them have had uh, East African roots, Kenyan Ugandan roots. Yet they really don't want to be associated with people of outside Britain and Europe. They appear to be more European than the Europeans themselves. And uh, so the paradox is having these uh, accommodated, uh, trying to be to prove to be to be more British than the British in their policies, especially towards Africa and other places. Uh, it's um, it's a regret, but that's what it appears to be. And therefore, the impression that they are more racist because their policies are anti people who are not white, although they themselves qualify not to be white. Yeah, this is quite a paradox, I must say. Um, but in your opinion, which practical steps can be taken after King Charles' acknowledgement of, quote, the more painful aspects of UK and Kenya's shared history, end quote, Which practical steps could be taken to obtain some kind of compensation from Britain? Well, I don't think there'll be much of a compensation from Britain. And Charles is coming for a sentimental reason. He's not coming here to apologize. Oh, yes, he might acknowledge, yeah, we've made mistakes here and there. And yes, we beat up a few people here and there. But the essence of his visit is not to apologize. And maybe try to get in touch with a few people and see whether they can move on instead of um, um, emphasizing the negative past. So he'd be looking for a positive way forward and see what they can agree on in terms of um, understandings. In the process of doing that, acknowledging that some mistakes were made and uh, crimes were committed uh, without apologizing, just admit that there was something like that. Then there may be effort to see what it is that can be done symbolically so that people can see that something happened. And uh, among the things that might be touched on is the issue of documents. Before leaving Kenya, officially, British officials uh, took a lot of documents to go and hide them or keep them in London. And those became sources of now questions. So can you return our documents? There were artifacts, uh, sometimes some of them being shrines and uh, things of value to particular peoples in Kenya. And they were taken away. Some of them are in various museums, like the Pitt Museum. <laughs> they, they said to have quite a few things. And uh, so there's discussion, can you return these things to us? They, they mean more to our people than they mean to you. So the, why should you be keeping those things? I think there'll be discussions along those lines. Can you return our artifacts, return our uh, documents, because we have value for them. But besides that, uh, the king will be visiting the Uhuru uh, Garden Museum. Uh, symbolically, it's an important place. Apart from the big structure that Uhuru Kenyatta constructed as part of his legacy, that was where Prince Philip, King Charles's father, handed the instruments of independence to Uhuru Kenyatta's father, Jomo Kenyatta, 
So it's as uh, that sentimental, symbolic, uh, emotional attachment by him going there. It has that kind of implication, recognizing uh, an event that ushered in officially Kenya's independence with P Prince Philip uh, giving the documents to Uhuru Kenyatta's uh, father. And it is Uhuru Kenyatta who built that um, museum, uh, which has yet to be properly opened. But it's a big structure. The other thing that can happen is that the, the British can help to uh, move the National Archives from where it is. It's in a very bad place, which is not very accessible. And uh, I think uh, the maintenance has not been the best because it's said to be leaking in some parts of the roof, so which spoil the document. They can help to move this thing and uh, get them put, put in uh, in a place where it's accessible for scholars and researchers to go and do their thing. Right now, where the National Archives is, is virtually inaccessible. And uh, so that's, that's a small thing that the British, uh, the King Charles can look into. Or even the question of the the National Museums itself, that some of them need um, up, uh, sprucing up. And uh, the, these are small discussions that can be held. And I know that the Ministry of Culture is trying its best to see whether they can have a, a good discussion about the artifacts and about the documents and which other way that can be uh, discussed to move, to, to lessen the tensions and as well as make people happy. Uh, thank you, Prof. My final question will be on a bit of a personal note, if I may, of course. In your family, in your own family history, are there any memories of the Mau Mau uprising period? And could you share such memories, if there are any, please? Well, um, my father was a Mau Mau detainee. He was in some of those very rough detention camps. Uh, he, he lost his teeth because he was clobbered by some Mzungu officer. And um, so you used to have that memory. And the reason he was uh, clobbered to lose his teeth was because he refused to say that Kenyatta was a bad man. Uh, so he, visited, he was in many of those jobs. I also had an uncle who was in the forest fighting and he did die in the fight itself. And um, of course, being a, a young person, uh, uh, you just notice some of these things, and then sometimes you you hear about some of the things that you you could not be part of. Uh, so I have small memories here and there of uh, the, the effect. So if there are going to be any compensations and payment for uh, trauma and um, for injuries done to the Mau Mau and that, well, I don't know, maybe I should claim something also, but I don't think I'll be doing that. For looking at the big picture, the reality of the matter, uh, those are memories. And, and, and he's not, my family is not the only one. There are, there are many thousands of them who, when they tell their story, uh, some of them sound really horrowing. So, yes, I do have small um, memories connected with the with the Mau Mau, uh, but uh, mine is not a big is not as big as some what other people have had. So yes, I'm interested in um, 
the well the well-being of the mama and the memories and the what people get to know about it. In fact, I've been involved in a, quite a bit of research on the mem- on the veterans and the survivors. Mm, that got uh, two two group categories. I think I'd qualify to be in the survivor category, but not but not a veteran. Prof, thank you for reviving this important chapter of history. As by, you know, conversations like these, we truly keep the memories of fallen heroes alive. In fact, whitewashing history does more harm than good, as it ultimately paints a whole new story. But the biggest damage is that we forget real people, real heroes that lived real lives and achieved real things. Let's keep our history alive by commemorating historical events such as the Mau Mau uprising. And let's give this chapter of history the proper attention it rightly deserves. In case you missed a part of this podcast, feel free to rewind on popular podcasting platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Castbox, Pocket Casts, Afripods and Podcast Addict. If you're more of a reader, then feel free to go to the Sputnik Africa website and enjoy the numerous articles we have there. However, for shorter digests, go ahead to our Sputnik Africa Telegram page, TikTok account and other socials to get the juiciest information from across the globe. For your convenience, feel free to download the Sputnik Africa application. There's that for today's episode, dear friends, and I'll be seeing you next time. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.